Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Saturday, February 16, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series and presented in collaboration with the Foreign Policy Research Institute. In this talk, historian John Maurer discusses how one of history's deadliest wars began and how Western democracies came to confront the global threat of fascism. This year, 2019, we look back on two events of the past. First, it's the 100th anniversary of the Treaty of Versailles and all the peace settlements that took place in Paris in 1919 that brought an end to the First World War. But this year is also the 80th anniversary for the outbreak of World War II in Europe. So these two events we should be remembering this year. And of course, those events from history are linked together because the roots of the Second World War, well, you can trace them back to matters, important matters, that were not solved by the First World War. Now, Winston Churchill, in writing about the Second World War and its origins, in his history of the Second World War, the first volume called The Gathering Storm, he wrote about that the Second World War, what he called the Second Armageddon, that this war can hardly ever have been more easy to prevent, more easy to prevent. Look at that language. Now, I look back and I say, well, I don't know. In many ways, it seems as if the Second World War was overdetermined. It was almost inevitable. How could it have been avoided? What were the choices? What could leaders have done to prevent this Second World War? By the way, this study of Churchill here is a study that was done by the artist Graham Sutherland. He is the one that did the famous portrait of Winston Churchill that was presented to him on his 80th birthday on November 30th, 1954. Uh, If you've seen the television show The Crown, there was an episode that revolved around that. Now, Churchill didn't like that portrait. If you want to see what it looks like, you can Google it. Graham Sutherland Churchill, and you'll see this portrait. Uh, He detested this portrait, and he made the joke that when it was uh, unveiled in front of the audience, he said, this is an example of modern art. Well, he detested it so much that after his death in January of 1965, his wife, Clementine, put the uh, painting on a fire and destroyed it. Uh, Anyway, if you Google that, you'll see the history of it. But this is one of the earlier studies that Graham Sutherland uh, did, again, of Churchill in 1954 toward his 80th birthday, in his 80th year. And what you see there, what Graham Sutherland saw, was a man who was angry, disappointed, bitter, and also the ravages of age. And that's what he captured in that portrait, and that Churchill apparently 
Well, he didn't like that. He wanted a more heroic image of himself to be remembered by. But in many ways, though, it captures that frustration, the anger, that somehow that Second World War should have been avoided. Could it have been avoided? Well, this morning I'm going to talk primarily about the 1930s, after Hitler came to power. And my focus is going to be on Britain and the choices that Great Britain had to try to prevent this second Armageddon, the Second World War. And I focus on Britain primarily because of all the European great powers, it is the one that has the strength that can show some leadership to prevent a Second World War. Or, if the war is inevitable, that British leaders could have done more to prepare for that war that was coming. So... This morning, I'm going to talk primarily about what Britain was doing in this period of time and how the choices that British leaders had. And I want to focus on choices because when you study history, we look back and we say, it seems inevitable that what happened happened. We don't see its contingent nature. We don't see how choices made by leaders and by peoples can somehow change history. I think one of the exciting things about history is when you go back and look at the choices and understand how people of the past, just how smart and intelligent they were, they saw these choices before them. They knew they had options, and yet they chose one over another with the outcomes and consequences that we call history. So what I want to do is look at the choices and think about what might have been, what might have been as well as what happened. Well, to look at the outbreak of the Second World War in Europe, you have to go back to the Great War, the First World War. You cannot understand the history of the Second World War without understanding the immediate past, what had happened a generation before in Europe from 1914 to 1918. Uh, The lunar landscape of the trenches of the Western Front. Here you see Canadian soldiers going over the top attacking German positions in France and in Belgium. The British Empire uh, lost over 700,000 killed, killed on the Western Front alone during the First World War. Britons from England, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada. Heavy loss of life. The British Empire has suffered a grievous blow even in winning this war. The war at sea saw the destruction of millions of tons of shipping by German submarines. War on land and sea resulting in great loss of life and destruction of treasure. Well, in November of 1918, Armistice Day, November 11th, the 11th hour, the 11th month, Uh, There, an armistice took place on the Western Front, and great celebrations taking place in Britain. And here you see the Daily Mirror, front page, uh, Londoners celebrating the great victory over Germany. This was supposed to be the war to end all great wars. No one should have to go through this bloodletting again. That's the view that people had. It's over. They survived. They've come through it with heavy loss of life, but they're the survivors, and they want to celebrate their great victory 
over Germany. Well, making peace, the world leaders come together in Paris in January of 1919 to try to hammer out a peace for Europe, to make sure that there is not another great war. And here you see the big three. On the left, Britain's prime minister, David Lloyd George, fiery leader, inspirational to the British people. His leadership during the First World War is critical for keeping Britain in the war at a time when Britain had suffered heavy loss of life and it seemed as if the war wasn't going well, that Britain was losing. David Lloyd George inspired the British people to keep fighting. He is in many ways the Churchill of the First World War. Uh, Next to him, the French Prime Minister, Georges Clemenceau, again, a fiery leader, uh, someone who inspired the French at the same time to keep fighting. And on the side there, our own President Woodrow Wilson. These are the big three that came together in Paris in January of 1919 to try to bring about peace in Europe. And on the 28th of June, 1919, five years to the day in which the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria and his wife Sophie had been gunned down, assassinated in Sarajevo in 1914 that triggered the First World War. Five years to the day, to the opening shots, if you will, of the First World War, the Germans come before the big three in the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles to sign the peace treaty between Germany and its enemies. And what you see here is Wilson, Clemenceau, Lloyd George, and German delegate, they're signing the peace treaty. Well... This peace treaty contained within it the seeds of future conflict. Here you see the map of Europe as it was redrawn at Versailles. The Austria-Hungary, the monarchy, is all broken up, and you see instead successor states, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, portions of Romania and Yugoslavia, all these states created out of Austria-Hungary. And Germany, Germany has also suffered territorial loss. They had controlled Alsace-Lorraine. For 47 years, that is now taken back by France. And in the east, a Polish state has been created. uh, And territory from Germany has been taken away to create this new Polish state. For many Germans, for German nationalists, they look at this treaty as having dismembered Germany. They want to look forward and someday, can this be overturned, this settlement? It's a humiliation. Here's another map, more graphic, showing the losses. So you can see the territory in the black there being taken away from Germany to Poland. Uh, Again, Germany, the core state of Germany is still strong in the heart of Europe, still an economic powerhouse. Germany remains strong despite this loss of territory. In the West, too, to prevent Germany from invading Belgium and France, as they had done during the First World War, the Rhine is demilitarized. Germany's not able to build fortifications there or station troops there so that the Rhineland cannot be a place for the Germans to launch offensives into Western Europe. Again, for German nationalists, this sticks in their craw as being a humiliating peace. 
Here's a German cartoon from right after the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. And what do you see there? The big three, Lloyd George, Clemenceau, Woodrow Wilson, and a German Germany, hands tied, going to be executed by the guillotine. Again, this already shows the hatred in Germany for Versailles. By the way, the caption of this cartoon says, the only choice you have, Germany, uh, is are you going to give us the money before we execute you, pick your pockets, or are we going to take money from you after we execute you? Again, what's sticking in the German craw is that Germany is going to have to pay reparations for other countries. They're going to have to pay the cost of the war. Again, this, this cartoon is haunting because it shows the anger that Germans already feel in 1919 to what they see as a dictation. The German delegation, by the way, was given the Treaty of Versailles, and they were told, take it or leave it. There's no negotiation between the big three and the German leaders. They have to accept the peace treaty. And so in Germany, it's called a dictation that they have been dictated to. There was no genuine negotiation between the victorious powers and Germany. And again, here, look at Woodrow Wilson, how he's portrayed. That's a frightening portrait. Again, these angry men who are there to kill Germany. Well, right away in Britain, there's a revulsion against the Treaty of Versailles among important intellectual figures in Britain. John Maynard Keynes, perhaps the greatest economist of the 20th century, right away penned a book called The Economic Consequences of the Peace. And in this book, he says this policy of reducing Germany to what he calls a servitude, well, degrading their lives, a nation of happiness, should be abhorrent and detestable. In other words, already in the victorious powers, you're seeing people who are saying, this peace is too harsh. Somehow it has to be revised. If it isn't revised, the result will be another great war of revenge as Germany tries to undo this settlement. One of the things that we study in a strategy course is that a war ends when the enemy says it ends, when they admit defeat. We like to say today, the enemy gets a vote. The enemy determines when a war is over because they say, I'm not going to fight anymore. Now, sometimes you go up against an enemy, you can never break their will. They want to keep fighting. And so at that point, the goal of the strategist is to limit their capability to do harm to you. If you can't totally defeat them, if you can't beat them to where they don't want to keep fighting, then the best you can do is to limit the amount of damage, hurt that they can do to you. Again, you have to have the other side, the other, come and say, we agree. We should not fight anymore. And what Keynes is saying, that you're not going to get that conciliation, that enemy vote, that German vote for peace, if there isn't conciliation there. Well, uh, right away, British leaders understand there has to be something in the way of a conciliation, accommodation with Germany. And so in the mid-1920s, you see British leaders taking the lead in trying to promote 
a better peace in Europe. And in the fall of 1925, leaders of Britain, Germany, France get together at Locarno in Switzerland. And they negotiate a set of agreements to try to uh, overcome the German hostility to the Versailles settlement. In many ways, the treaties of Locarno of 1925 are the real settlement of the First World War. And the leaders who met in Locarno were Gustav Stresemann of Germany, important political figure uh, in this period of time, for France, Brian, the prime minister, and in the center, Austin Chamberlain. Austin Chamberlain is the older half-brother of Neville Chamberlain, who is more famous. Austin Chamberlain was Britain's foreign secretary or secretary of state at this time. And what they do is they meet at Locarno and they hammer out treaties in, in which reparations are going to eventually uh, be drawn down, not as heavy. Also, a German recognition that the borders in Western Europe are appropriate. In other words, the Germans are admitting that they don't want Alsace-Lorraine again. So there's a settlement here, a reconciliation of sorts between France and uh, Germany. And that's essential for the peace of Europe. And Britain is taking the lead in bringing these two countries together. In addition, reparations payments, which initially were set very high, are being reduced. The Germany doesn't have to pay as much to the victorious powers. And you have plans being brokered by the United States. The Dawes Plan, the Young Plan, in which Germany's reparations come down. So Germany is being reconciled to its defeat in the 1920s. There's a good trajectory here, is what I'm trying to say. The, the peace of Europe is becoming stabilized. It looks as if there won't be another great war in Western Europe. Very positive trend. Well, unfortunately, the Great Depression intervenes, beginning on Wall Street here, 1929. And let me give you some indication about what this economic catastrophe entailed. Um, again, if you notionally had the stock portfolio in July of 26, be it rank it at 100, the boom took, would take it up to 20, uh, two, 216. In other words, you'd double in some ways. That looks good. I'd like that for my retirement. But then you can see right after the crash uh, in October what happens. And then by March of 33, wow, the stock market never really recovers throughout the 30s from this great crash. Well, there would go my retirement. I have to keep working. You also see a collapse of world trade at this time as countries start to set up protective barriers. They want to somehow protect their own people from what they see as unfair foreign competition. And you can see, look at the incredible drop that takes place. Uh, in international trade at this time. Again, this is a contagion that spreads around the world. And look at these figures for industrial unemployment. Notice this is not the overall unemployment figures. This is for industrial unemployment. In other words, the cutting edge of your economy, of these major powers. Look at this. Almost half of German industrial workers were out of work in 1932. The winter of 32-33 is the low point of the Great Depression. 
By the way, the business cycle starts to take off. You start to see recovery in 33. But also governments are taking action to try to, again, get countries out of the Great Depression. The memorial to uh, FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt in Washington, D.C., wonderful statues. By the way, that's a wonderful memorial. When you're down in Washington, make sure you go, go see that. Of course, Herbert Hoover, president at the time, seen as a failure in not being able to respond to the Great Depression. And Franklin D. Roosevelt becoming president, elected on the first Tuesday of November 1932 and becoming president, inaugurated in March of 1933. Don't you just love this iconic photograph of him? Cigarette, cigarette holder, that big smile. Again, trying to restore confidence, confidence that people can get out of this great economic catastrophe in the United States. Well, in Britain, there's also a government response. A national government is formed. It is made up of leaders from the three major British political parties, the Tories, the Conservatives, Labour Party, and the Liberal Party. Again, the economic crisis is so severe that in September of 31, the British leaders say, we have to somehow put away our party differences. We have to join together the three major parties, to get Britain out of this economic uh, downturn, the slump, as they call it. And who are some of the leaders? Well, the conservative party leader, Stanley Baldwin. He's the most important figure at this time. We'll have more to say about him. And Neville Chamberlain, who becomes eventually Chancellor of the Exchequer, the British uh, executive leader, who's in charge of the economy, taxes. uh, um, um. So these two leaders, Neville Chamberlain and Stanley Baldwin, emerge in Britain at this time as the men who are bringing Britain out of the slump. Again, two conservative leaders in a coalition government with Labour and with the Liberal Party. Coming out of the slump, Neville Chamberlain emerges as the figure the political figure in Britain that has done the most to bring about an economic recovery in Britain. And so to understand the 30s in Britain, you have to understand that Neville Chamberlain is seen as a successful leader who helps end the depression in Britain. Again, that's a great achievement. And so that explains why he is such an important figure in 1930s uh, Britain. Well, how about Germany in 1932? United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt coming to power, a national government coming to power in Britain. But how about Germany in 1932? What are the options? What might have happened? Well, one option is that the Weimar Republic, a parliamentary democracy, stumbles on, an economic recovery happens, and you see democracy um, be able to stay in place in Germany. That's one possible outcome. Another outcome, probably just as likely, is that the military steps in and sets up a military dictatorship for some period of time within Germany. That's another option in response to the Great Depression. The third thing that could happen is a Nazi tyranny. And, of course, we know what the history says. That is what happens 
Hitler comes to power as chancellor on January 30th, 1933. The reason why I'm putting up this slide, though, is I want to highlight, again, history's contingent nature. There was nothing inevitable about the Nazis coming to power in 1933. These other two options could well have happened. I can't give you odds, the probability, but they all might be equally likely. This is a major tipping point in world history. If the economic recovery had come a little bit sooner, the Nazis' popularity might have gone down, and you might have seen the Weimar Republic go on. Or, if Hitler had overplayed his hand, you might have had a military dictatorship come in to take over the country. So, there was nothing inevitable about Hitler's rise to power. What makes Hitler possible, seizing power in Germany, is the Great Depression. It's not just the anger among Germans about the settlement of the First World War. It's also the Great Depression. It's important to emphasize this because the spirit of Locarno shows that if the world economy had continued to grow, if you hadn't had the Great Depression, it is unlikely that this second Armageddon would have occurred. It took this massive economic downturn to bring the Nazis to power in Germany. This photograph, this is a creepy photograph. This will stick with you. Jim and I were talking about this beforehand. Uh, The Nazi movement is in many ways a youth movement. It's appealing to the young. The young people of Germany are looking for work. They can't find it in the Great Depression. They're dissatisfied. You know, when you have young men, 15 to 30, who are unhappy, that leads to a great deal of social turbulence appeals to extremism. We see this throughout history. It's not just in Germany, but in other countries where you have young men who are not happy. Um, And of course, young men who have lost a father or an uncle, older brother during the First World War, who don't have that stabilizing older male uh, anchor in their life, And so who do they turn to? Well, a highly decorated First World War veteran, Adolf Hitler. He becomes the father figure for them. Look at those eyes, though. This is so creepy. And and look, this is right out of, you know, Grim Fairy Tales, Grim Fairy Tales. You know, the Pied Piper of Hamelin. Somehow, uh, they've been cheated. And so the Pied Piper is going to steal the kids. Uh, uh, that there's somehow been um, uh, the the, uh, leadership of the time has been dishonest and has betrayed people. And who comes along? Well, again, this Pied Piper who's going to steal away the youth of a country. Well, we know what's going to happen to the youth of that country. I, I don't know how old that boy is there. How old would you think he is? Twelve looks right, right. So this is, say, 1933. Six years on the 33, 12, 18. In other words, he's your frontline soldier who's going to be fighting in France, who's going to be fighting in Russia, or flying aircraft bombing Britain, or in a submarine in the North Atlantic 
Again, that young boy there, he's going to be the cannon fodder of the second Armageddon, following uh, Hitler, the leader, the Fuhrer. Well, right away, Winston Churchill is warning the British people that the Weimar Republic is gone and what you have is a dictatorship. And as Churchill said early on and early in 1933, it's not just a dictatorship, but a most grim dictatorship. And of course, you can hear Shakespearean language there, can't you? You know, right out of Hamlet. You know, it's not just murder, it's murder most foul. Well, here you have not just a dictatorship, but a dictatorship most grim has been imposed. Right away for Churchill, the peace of Europe is endangered by the fact that the Nazis, this extreme nationalist movement, are now in power in Germany. And they've made no secret of what their aims are in the mid-20s. At the time of Locarno, Hitler in prison is writing a book called Mein Kampf, Mein Struggle. And in it, he is laying out that his agenda is to make Germany a world power. And if Germany can't be a world power, we might say a superpower. The leading state on the international scene, that if Germany can't become a world power, then it should cease to exist. For Hitler, all of life is a great struggle of the races, of peoples fighting each other for supremacy. And the strong dominate the weak. Again, a very Darwinian, cruel environment, a hostile environment of intense competition. And if you don't strive and become the greatest, well, then you'll be destroyed. You'll go away. You'll disappear. Well, uh, Hitler in January of 39 is also making clear that in particular it's the Jews that he despises and hates, that he believes has brought about Germany's defeat in the First World War. And this is a speech in January of 39 to the Reichstag. And the key element, he says, if the Jews once again plunge the peoples of the world into another world war, the result will not be a victory for them. Instead, the destruction of the Jewish race in Europe. Again, this is very clear message here what Hitler's aims and ambitions are. This is before the war has even begun. Again, this type of rhetoric by January of 39 has set off alarm bells around the world and in Britain that, yeah, Hitler is a particularly dangerous uh, adversary. And it's around this time that the British peoples and government become serious about arming against Germany. Again, as Hitler reveals more of what he wants to do publicly, not just a book that he had written 14 years before, but the, these views still, he still held them, is something that frightens British leaders. Well, we know where it all leads. The railways to Auschwitz and the extermination camps that were set up by the Nazi regime during the war, carrying out this racial war that is such an element of Hitler's worldview. Well, how do you respond to a challenger to a threat? Well, AAA. I thought you were going to laugh at that. <laughs> no, not the Automobile Club of America. Uh, but uh, what you do is there are three ways when you see a threat, how do you respond to it? Well, uh, again, if we were taking a class in international relations, we would highlight three A's. 
Now, what are the three A's? One is if someone's coming at you that's dangerous, you start to arm yourself. You prepare to defend yourself against that. In addition, if someone's coming at you, you say, who else is afraid of that, that threat? Let's join together into a coalition, form alliances. And, oh, by the way, when that threat comes, let's just, let's find out what that threat is like. Can we accommodate that threat? Because after all, after all, rather than fight somebody, can't you talk with them and talk things through? So these are the ways that countries respond to threats. You prepare to defend yourself. You find other peoples who uh, see the same threat. And you also talk with that threat to find out about their intentions and see if you could avoid conflict. So what I'm going to do is talk about these three elements of the British response to Hitler's Germany and look at the range of choice, why it is that Britain took the steps that they did in the 1930s when faced by this extreme threat from Hitler's Germany. So the first choice I want to look at is armaments. Why did Britain not arm as quickly as they should? Well, before the First World War, the lesson of the First World War was that arms races before the First World War led to what? War. This is a common view throughout Britain, the United States, that it was the armaments race. Countries increasing their armaments before the First World War had led to the war itself. Germany built up a fleet. Britain then has to build up a fleet to counter it. Uh, Russia builds railways and increases its army. Germany then has to build railways and increase its armies. It has to strike France before the Russians can come. Anyway, you, you look at this and you say it's the arms race. The arms race triggered caused the war. So that's one of the big lessons that leaders learned about why war occurred in 1914. It colors everything that they're doing at this time. Well, in particular for Britain, the fear is air attack, command of the air. Whoever can command the air can command the surface of the world as well. So an arms competition begins in air armaments, in air forces. And the Nazis, when they come to power, put a great deal of emphasis on building up their air strength. And as you can see, well, this is one way you get out of a depression too, you really start building up your arms industry. And here you can see in a short period of time that the German aircraft industry is uh, being supported by the Nazi regime, creating a powerful modern air force. Bombers. Well, in Britain, this is something to fear. You, You know, in an age where there's no aircraft, you have a channel, an ocean that isolates you from Europe. You have Brexit. You can be a part. But what happens when you have aircraft that can go over that channel? Well, Stanley Baldwin, in a speech in Parliament, says it's important for that man in the street to realize something. There's nothing that can protect, nothing you can protect you from being bombed. He goes on to say, whatever you might hear, the bomber will always get through. You can't defend against the bomber. That German Air Force that's being built up, it is a threat, a threat to Britain. And, of course, he's right. The bomber does get through. This iconic photograph of St. Paul's Cathedral in 1940 during the Blitz when the Germans are bombing London and the major urban areas of Britain. The bomber does get through. Stanley Baldwin was right. Well, what's Winston Churchill's response to this? His response is, we've got to double our air force. 
And then, not only that, but double it again. If Germany's building up its air, aircraft industry, it's building up its air force, the response is for Britain to build up its air force. The only way to deter Germany is to have a power, a strength as great as that of Germany, to cause German leaders to pause and think, we can't win. Yes, maybe German bombers can get through to London, but British bombers can get through to Berlin. So as a consequence of that, that Britain has to build up its strength. But it's important to recognize at this time, Churchill is not in government. He's out of government. He's considered a hawk. His view is considered extreme. He's contributing to an arms race that could lead to war. Within Britain, you also have the leader of the Labour Party in the early 1930s, George Lansbury. By the way, he's the grandfather of uh, the British actress Angela Lansbury. Uh, he says, no, we shouldn't respond to Germany's build-up by building up an air force. That'll only lead to war. It's what happened in the First World War. So you have the hawk Churchill on one side, the dove on the other, uh, and in the middle you have the owl, the wise bird, Neville Chamberlain. There's a middle course between these extremes. Of course, you know, if we were to think about all different types of birds, we could think about chickens, ostriches, and, and the rest. Uh, but Neville Chamberlain is seen as the moderate course in all of this, N- not giving in to the extremes of Churchill or of Lansbury, the hawks and the doves. And for Chamberlain, what is it? It's the Great Depression. If you're going to run a risk in the world, you don't want to run a risk with the British economy by spending too much on armaments and creating inflation that might then in turn lead to another downturn. So again, the most serious and urgent task that the country faces, Britain faces, is to restore the economy. What is it? It's the economy, stupid. Remember? Well, what was his uh, prescriptions for an economic recovery? You have tax relief, balanced budgets, price stability, maintain the pound, protection, Britain institutes uh, uh, protection tariffs or uh, protect its empire and restore cuts that had occurred in government spending. These are his priorities. Notice arming against Germany is not there. Uh, he wants to instead make sure that the British economy has the basis for long-term sustained growth. Well, here's a chart just to give you a sense of what the spending is. As you can see at the beginning, Britain is outspending Weimar Germany. But once Hitler comes to power, you can see how Germany's spending takes off. And this is relative, German spending relative to British defense spending. And what you see is that down to 1938, Britain is spending on defense as if Hitler was not in power, as if the Weimar Republic still existed. And you see that gap opening up between German investment spending on its armaments and what Britain is not spending on armaments. Now, once war comes, as you can see, Britain starts to devote a great deal of resources and overtakes Germany. Again, uh, one way of thinking about this, uh, one saying is that democracies uh, like to declare war and then prepare for war. Declare and then prepare. And this is very much borne out by the British example here. So Germany's getting ahead in the arms race, and in particular the arms race in the air. In August of 39, 
Hitler turns to his generals and says, what's the situation of us, Germany, relative to England? And he says, England's vulnerable to air attack. England's air force only has about 130,000. Germany, three times that size. In other words, Britain has lost the air race. This gives a window of opportunity for Hitler to jump through. So again, what's the lesson of the 1930s? Well, it seems to be the opposite of before 1914. You lose an arms race, it goes to war. Again, circumstances are different. Trying to apply one formula from one period to another, well, that can lead to disaster. Well, how about choice two, alliances, to form alliances against Hitler? What is Britain doing at this period of time? Well, before the First World War, it was thought that alliances lead to war. A chain gang. Serbia and Austria-Hungary go to war with each other. That brings Russia in, and France, and then Germany, and then Britain. And everybody's chained together in these alliance blocks. And so once one country goes to war, they all go to war. The war escalates. Well, that seemed to be the lesson of the First World War. So alliances can contribute to war. You want to avoid them if you can. Be more isolated. Look after your own interests. Don't overcommit to partners. Well, Neville Chamberlain is saying, hey, we're a rich and vulnerable empire. There's a lot of people out there that want a piece of our empire. They're hungry. They have that lean and hungry look. They're going to come after the British Empire. It's hard to form alliances. Britain has an empire that stretches around the globe. One quarter of the world's landmass and people are being administered by Britain. They face threats on a number of fronts. In the Mediterranean, in North Africa, it's Mussolini's Italy. In the Far East, it's imperial militaristic Japan. Stalin's Russia is also seen as a threat, that Stalin wants to expand communism, that communism can come to the British Empire. Well, how about the special relationship between the United States and Britain? After all, they had fought together in the First World War. Uh, We think about this special relationship between the English-speaking peoples. Can't the United States and Britain stand together against these threats? Well, at the end of the First World War... This is the view that, yes, Uncle Sam and Britannia together, arm in arm locked, Britannia holding the trident, Uncle Sam with the sword, the lion, the eagle, together, side by side. These two countries, they can preserve the peace. Again, they should celebrate their time as coalition partners. Come together. Well, again, this uh, poster... um, It's not a good predictor of what is going to happen. To Neville Chamberlain, who's had to deal with the Americans with regard to international financial matters to come out of the Great Depression, his view is what? Americans, it's a nation of cads. That cuts me to the quick. I'm a cad. Ooh, ooh, that hurts. Again, this is born of frustration of how do you get out of the Depression? Can countries cooperate with each other? in the economic sphere. And Neville Chamberlain is, Americans don't want to cooperate. Franklin D. Roosevelt is trying to torpedo an international recovery by focusing primarily on the U.S. So for Neville Chamberlain, the U.S. isn't a country that's easy to cooperate with. 
In fact, SB stands for Stanley Baldwin. Uh, Baldwin tells Neville Chamberlain that he's come to loathe Americans. Now, this comment comes about because uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt's son, James Roosevelt, was in England. And when in England, he requested an interview to spend time with Stanley Baldwin. Stanley Baldwin said, I don't want to meet with him. The president's son. I don't want to meet I, I loathe Americans. He hates meeting with them. Now, Stanley Baldwin did meet with James Roosevelt, but again, this is what he's saying behind the scenes, uh, how he's thinking about America and the U.S. Uh, again, can you have cooperation when you have these attitudes that Americans are cads, Americans, well, they're, they're out to get us. They're a problem as much as a solution. Well, Winston Churchill, when James Roosevelt is over in Britain, Roosevelt invi- uh, Churchill invites uh, uh, Roosevelt uh, to Chartwell, his home in the countryside. And uh, James Roosevelt says to Churchill, what's your fondest wish? What, what, what would you like to have happen? And this is what Churchill says to Franklin D. Roosevelt's son. He wants to be prime minister. Of course he does, everybody. You know, if you're a politician in Britain, you want to be prime minister, right? You want to be the leader of the country. But he wants to be in daily communication with the president of the United States. And if that were to happen... Well, there's nothing that the United States and Britain that they can't accomplish if these two countries, great countries, don't work together. Again, you see a different attitude here, showing the range of choice. How much can you cooperate and try to foster cooperation with the United States? Well, Neville Chamberlain, he writes to his sister and says, you know, this whole idea that the U.S. will make a security commitment to other countries, that the U.S. will take and make an undertaking, to protect other countries by using force. Um, He writes to his sister in 1934, they won't do that. The Americans, they'll only get involved and use force if there's an attack on Hawaii and Honolulu. Can you believe this? This is 1934. December 7, 1941 is, what, seven years away? By what was in the air that Neville Chamberlain, you know, pulled in, you know, a crystal ball that he could see forward like that. Isn't this amazing? When I read this in his letter uh, to his sister, I was just stupefied and stunned. Where did he pull that out of, you know, the air? But anyway, uh, it turns out to be that's uh, an apt prediction of what does happen. The U.S. doesn't enter the war until Japan attacks the United States uh, in Hawaii. At this time, it's a period of isolationism. The world's democracies, what you see one after another, are rejecting coalitions, coming together. The U.S. isn't going to do what it did after the Second World War of forming the Atlantic Alliance, protecting Western Europe. Instead, we're retreating to hemispheric defense. The Western Hemisphere is where we should hunker down. What you see in France... France is on the continent of Europe, but they're trying to isolate themselves by building fortifications, the so-called Maginot Line, after the French defense minister, André Maginot. Build fortifications. That's, you know, what happens over there in Central Europe. Let's keep it far away by building fortifications to protect us from the rest of Europe. Is that Frexit? I don't know. You know, I mean, it's trying to, you know, get away from that. The Dominions, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, part of the British Empire, they don't want to spend anything on defense. Let Britain defend us. Uh, Again, an isolation in the British Empire as well. And the British, 
what they like to call splendid isolation. They do want Brexit. They want to retreat. They don't want to make a firm security commitment to France. They don't want to be dragged into a war by France. Instead, you build up your air force eventually to have a deterrent of the German air power. That's what the goal is for Britain. Again, in this atmosphere of isolationism, lack of cooperation, you see that Germany has opportunities to strike one after the other. And in 1940, France is defeated. 1940, Britain is almost defeated. Uh, If these countries don't come together, it gives Germany an opportunity to uh, win. So failing to ally, well, what's the lesson from the 30s? Well, it leads to war. The opposite of what the lessons were from before 1914. Choice number three, appeasement. Well, what is appeasement? Well, to give you a definition... This is a pretty standard definition, that it's a foreign policy where you try to pacify some opponent, some challenger. And you do it through negotiation, and the goal is to prevent war. A rational person, a realist, understands that wars are catastrophes to be avoided at all costs. So you try to negotiate and accommodate uh, that aggrieved country. So appeasement today, we don't use the word appeasement because appeasement has become a dirty word since the 1930s. The word that we use today is accommodation. Can I come to an accommodation with some rising power on the world scene? Um, What's the goal of this? You take a dissatisfied country and you make it satisfied through negotiations. You make concessions. You accommodate. You take a revisionist power, a country that wants to overturn the status quo, and you make them a partner within the status quo. You take a challenger, and you make them into a responsible stakeholder. This is the language that we use today, for example, with regard to China. You know, you want to see China become a responsible stakeholder of the international system rather than a threat or a challenge to the current international system. Well, in Britain, there's a lot of support for this accommodation. David Lloyd George, Britain's prime minister during the First World War, the man who won the war, the fiery politician who galvanized British resistance to Germany in the Great War. Well, he also was one of the main architects of the Treaty of Versailles. He wants to accommodate Germany and Hitler. So in 1936, he goes and meets with Hitler. He's out of power. He holds no position in government. Anyway, after coming back and meeting Hitler, he writes a newspaper article uh, about uh, his meeting with Hitler. And what does he say? Hitler's the George Washington of Germany. Huh? Huh? Why is that? Well, he won independence for his country from oppressors. His popularity among the youth of Germany, it's it's through through the sky. There can't be any doubt that Hitler is a popular figure, especially among the young. He solved unemployment. There's no unemployment among the youth anymore. They're all in uniform. They've all been drafted. From March of 35, he's reinstituted conscription and open rearmament of Germany. That's one way of solving unemployment. Put somebody in a uniform and give them a weapon. Well, the old, they trust him, but the young of Germany, they idolize him. And by the way, Lloyd George is probably right. Hitler is very popular among the youth of Germany. 
And what is it? It's a worship of a national hero. He saved his country from what? Well, from the Great Depression, that sense of being beaten down in the First World War, again, of despondency and degradation. That's what Lloyd George says. Here's the man who won the war for Britain, who's now singing the praises of Adolf Hitler. By the way, uh, Hitler greatly admires Lloyd George. He says to Lloyd George that if we had had in Germany a politician of your caliber to lead us during the Great War, Germany would have won that war. Well, Hitler later on tells people all the time, he said, if Lloyd George, if he, if he were actually in power rather than being out of power, the result would be that he would be the one to build a firm Anglo-German relationship understanding. Maybe right. Well, Neville Chamberlain, of course, he's, he's more the realist in this. He's not embracing Hitler as totally as what Lloyd George is in 1936. He's the wise owl, remember. Well, to look at Neville Chamberlain, you have to look not only at the history of the time, but you have to look at his family. His father was Joseph Chamberlain, who was a successful industrialist who went into politics, became one of the most important British political figures at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. And in 1900, Joseph Chamberlain made an appeal for an alliance between Britain and Germany. That these two countries, what he called the Anglo-Saxon and Teutonic powers, that if they would unite together with the United States, that these three countries could preserve the peace of the world. Now, the Germans rudely rebuffed Joseph Chamberlain's call for an alliance Uh, Joseph Chamberlain, in fact, was mortified by how the German government said, no, we don't want an alliance with Britain. He got so angry that he told uh, uh, people, someday the Germans are going to create such trouble that the United States and Britain are going to have to teach them a lesson they will never forget. Again, though, Joseph Chamberlain was reaching out to accommodate Germany in 1900. One of the lessons from the First World War period that historians wrote about between the wars was that what if this had been successful? What if Joseph Chamberlain had been able to create this accommodation? There wouldn't have been a great war. That Britain and Germany wouldn't have fought each other. It's the path not taken. Well, there's also Austin Chamberlain, the older half-brother of Neville Chamberlain who created the spirit of Locarno, who tried to appease Weimar Germany to get them to accept their defeat. Very successfully wins the Nobel Peace Prize for the Locarno Treaties. Uh, Again, Neville Chamberlain looks at an older brother who is appeasing, accommodating Germany. By the way, Austin Chamberlain was ardently anti-Nazi. He could see the difference between Weimar Germany and Hitler's Germany. Uh, He would tell people, I'm all for appeasing Germany, just not this Germany. Wise words. Austin Chamberlain was very close to Winston Churchill in urging rearmament against Germany and also building up a coalition. Well, when Neville Chamberlain becomes prime minister in 1937, he reflects back on his family history. And he told people in his speech when he became prime minister that personal note, 
that he's thinking about his father and his older brother. His older brother had passed away uh, only a few months before. Uh, that his father and older brother, they were more qualified in some way to be prime minister. They never got to be prime minister, but Neville Chamberlain did. By the way, do you see the resemblance between Joseph and uh, Austin Chamberlain? The monocles. What happened to monocles? That's sort of fashionable, don't you think? <laughs> the, the orchid there uh, that Joseph Chamberlain has. You can see Austin, how much he's modeling himself on his father, whereas Neville is sort of the maverick um, in all of this. Well, again, Neville Chamberlain told people, he said, he sees himself as continuing consummating their life's work. And part of that life's work is avoid a war with Germany, accommodate Germany. Again, he wasn't listening to what his father and older half-brother were saying, that this is not a Germany that can be accommodated. Well, war in 1938. In 1938, war loomed up over Czechoslovakia. There was a German minority that lived in Czechoslovakia, the so-called Sudeten Germans. Uh, Hitler demands that Czechoslovakia be partitioned, that the German minority become part of Germany, a greater Germany. And he threatens war against Czechoslovakia. This map shows it. You can see that rim around the Czech state. He argues that the Germans in Czechoslovakia, they want to be liberated. They're an oppressed minority within Czechoslovakia. They should be part of Germany. And he's willing to go to war to do that. It creates a crisis. Uh, A crisis. Can you solve this? Can you accommodate this German demand? And what you see is that Britain takes a lead in this. Uh, By the way, um, Czechoslovakia has an alliance with um, uh, France and also with the Soviet Union. French, though, had told Prague that if it comes to a war, they're not going to fight unless the British fight. And the Soviet Union will only come in to help Czechoslovakia if France honors its alliance commitment. So what you see is countries, now we don't want to be pulled in at a chain gag by this. So Neville Chamberlain, he takes advantage of what? Air power. To fly to Germany. To go to speak with Hitler. To try to avoid war. Well, he has said that, hey, You know, in looking at Hitler, he's established a certain confidence. And in spite of that hardness and ruthlessness, I got the impression here's somebody can relied upon, given his word. Again, he's looking for a moderate Nazi. (laughs) There is no moderate Nazi, and certainly not Hitler. Certainly not him. What is he seeing there? Again, the solution then is that the German-speaking portions of Czechoslovakia be ripped away and given to Germany. And that's the result of the so-called Munich Agreements of 1938. Uh, Neville Chamberlain comes back to Britain to a hero's welcome. He's averted the war. Again, uh, appeasement is seen as something that's an active uh, 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 way to try to promote peace, not being passive and letting things happen. It is to take the initiative for peace. And he comes back, you know, waving the famous document that for him is peace in our time. And here's the document. Uh, on his last day in Germany, 
What Chamberlain did was, this is after the agreements have been signed, he pulls this document forward and hands it to Hitler and says, sign it. Uh, Hitler looks at this and goes, I don't want to sign this. Now, he's not going to say that to Neville Chamberlain. But he doesn't want to sign it, but he does sign it there. But he's angry, angry that Neville Chamberlain has forced him to sign this document that says that the two peoples don't want to go to war with each other again. You know, for Hitler, war, that's not something to be avoided. War is something that's great. It's ennobling. It's going to lead to the superior race winning out, dominating others. He doesn't want to avoid war. He wants war. In fact, he feels cheated in 1938. He wanted to fight in 38. It was Neville Chamberlain who came in, flying in to Germany to prevent the war that Hitler wanted. Well, for Neville Chamberlain, it's peace. Again, a great achievement. You know, and if Germany would be satisfied with this, this map, this is what Neville Chamberlain hopes. They've given Hitler what he wants in Central Europe. If that's all he wants, well, then there will be peace. But the problem is that Hitler doesn't want that. He wants all of Europe as a staging ground to become a world power, to go even further on the world scene. He's not satisfied with that. He wants more. And in March of 39, he rips up the Munich Agreement and takes over the rest of Czechoslovakia. The Czechs don't fight. They fold without a fight. And that is what sets off the alarm bells in Britain, that Hitler is not a moderate that can be accommodated. And you start to see rearmament take off in Britain at that time. Hitler himself was frustrated by Neville Chamberlain. This is what he had to say that if ever again that man, that English nanny he called them, Mary Poppins, with a mustache, you know, if he comes in with his umbrella flying in, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to throw him down the steps and start kicking him in front of all the photographers. Again, he doesn't want peace. He wants instead to make Germany into a super global power. Well, we know what happens. In 1939, it's Germany that makes the coalition with Stalin's Russia. Here's a famous cartoon by the cartoonist David Lowe that, yeah, you would think these two countries would never get together, but they have a common grievance. They both, both countries abhor the settlements of 1919. Russia was a defeated power. Germany a defeated power. A Polish state had been created. This is an opportunity for both of them to overthrow the international status quo. And so the war begins. German armies advancing into Poland. Stalin's Red Army advancing the other way, extinguishing the Polish state. Now, we know that this alliance doesn't last long. It only lasts down to June 22, 1941, when Hitler then turns on his coalition partner and attacks the Soviet Union. But that young boy that we saw, that 12-year-old, well, there he is marching off to war, being watched over by his Fuhrer, his leader. Well, what's the lesson? Appeasement might have worked to prevent the First World War, but appeasement in this case, it led to war. Well, some big takeaways, a concluding thought or two. The most important of which that I want to highlight is that when the world's democracies don't stay together, 
It gives opportunities for those who want to overturn the international status quo. It gives them the opportunity to act. It gives them the initiative. It is so important that the world's democracies stand together to hammer out their differences, not look at each other as nations of cads. Instead, that we look at each other as genuine partners who have a common aim to protect our freedoms and liberties, to preserve the peace. Thank you very much. Thank you. I have some uh, questions here, and uh, let me uh, try to read them. Um, This is a very legible hand. It's just my eyesight. It's not what it used to be. Uh, Why did Winston Churchill know so early on that Hitler was a real threat? It's a wonderful question. Um, Two things stand out. One uh, is that he understood that Germany was a threat, a long-term problem of how does a powerful country like Germany, how, how does that relate to its neighbors? Is Germany going to try to dominate its neighbors or is it going to work cooperatively together with other countries of Europe? Um, The First World War had shown that Germany was aggressive, trying to conquer Europe, if you will. So the threat from Hitler's Germany was that here was a regime that is hearkening back to a more aggressive attitude rather than the more peaceful attitude of the Weimar Republic. So that's one factor. But the second thing is for Hitler... Uh, the Hitler regime, that Churchill saw that in Hitler uh, a a dangerous, extreme nationalism and that this was going to lead to war. So it's highly ideological. He sees an existential threat at the heart of Western civilization, that the the Nazi racist uh, ideology runs counter to all that's best in Western civilization. And so for Churchill, Churchill looked at this and said, This is an immense danger here. So it's not just Germany's power that uh, troubled him. It's also the aims of an extremist regime in such a powerful country. And um, the second factor is the most important. And very early on, Churchill saw this. He was uh, writing a book about his ancestor, uh, the Duke of Marlborough. Uh, You know, recently the the movie The Favorite uh, that's out about about, um, the Duke of Marlborough's wife, Sarah Churchill, Again, great movie. My wife and I saw it just recently. Um, um, He was writing a book about his ancestor, and he was in Germany touring the battlefield, the battlefield of Blenheim, where the Duke of Marlborough beat the French back in 1704. And while in southern Germany, he saw these Nazi bands, uh, you know, groups of young people and their demonstrations in Germany. And and he, he could see that, oh, boy, the Nazi movement has captured the youth of Germany and that they, they want, as he said, as Churchill said, they want arms, they want weapons. So uh, Churchill early on saw this, this grave danger from, from Hitler's Germany. Again, great question. Um, how much cooperation was there between Germany and the Soviet Union uh, to allow Germany to rearm? Both countries, the Soviet Union and Germany, considered themselves defeated states in the First World War. And so, during the period of the Weimar Republic, Germany uh, is disarmed, effectively. They're not allowed to have tanks, chemical weapons, aircraft, submarines. Uh, 
So for a German army, how do you train? How do you, how do you deal with these new technologies? And so one way to do that was to cooperate with the Soviet Union to evade the restrictions of the victorious powers on German uh, military uh, exercises. And so German military officers would be in the Soviet Union. And what it, uh, the Soviet Union saw to, is of, of value uh, was that they were getting the latest uh, access to technology and know-how from the Germans. So that would improve the Soviet Red Army. So during the 20s, you have an active collaboration between the German military, arch-conservatives, with communists. Uh, so already the, the groundwork had been laid for this cooperation between these two revisionist states that want to overturn the international settlement of 1919. And so that continues until Hitler comes to power, and then Hitler you know, wants no more of it uh, until, again, 1939, when he forms this pact with Stalin, in which, again, you start to see German technology and know-how being part of the deal going to Soviet Russia, Soviet Russia in return providing oil and grain to Nazi Germany. Uh, that coalition, if it had stayed together, would have been a very dangerous one between Russia and Germany. Uh, one of the things that leads to the end of the Second World War and the defeat of Hitler's Germany is that he turns on his own ally in, Stalin, uh, in Stalin's uh, Russia. So there was a great deal of collaboration it benefited both the Soviet Union and the German military um, and is in some ways the precursor to the Hitler-Stalin pact that comes about in 1939. Um, how would you uh, describe the relationship between the Allies and the Soviet Union before the outbreak of war? Again, a really great question. Um, Stalin's Russia is considered a pariah state because it, like Germany, wants to overthrow the settlement in Europe. It wants to destroy Poland, take the Baltic states, take uh, Bessarabia, Moldova from Romania, have Finland under its control. All of those territories have been part of the Tsarist Empire. They want all of that back at a minimum. Stalin also, being a good communist, wants to expand communism even further if he can. Uh, so Stalin's Russia is very much a revisionist power. In 1928, Stalin institutes uh, the first five-year plan, which is the forced industrialization, militarization of the Soviet economy to gear up for war. In some ways, the Soviet Union is the first state to really arm itself for the next war, before Hitler's Germany, before Britain, before the U.S. Um, so Stalin is a revisionist power in this time, and he, uh, in um, looking around... Uh, it's hard for other countries to ally with him. You know, Britain sees Soviet Russia as a threat. Now, having said that, by 1935, because Hitler's his rhetoric is anti-Soviet, the, Soviet, the Kremlin realizes that they might be attacked someday. So they want to start forming alliances uh, with the West. So they join the League of Nations. Here's a country that didn't want to be part of the League. The League of Nations was the victorious powers. Russia was the defeated power. Now they're joining with the victorious powers to try to preserve the peace. Also, the Soviet Union makes an alliance with France and Czechoslovakia. Uh, it's contingent, though. The Soviet uh, entry to support Czechoslovakia and France is contingent upon France supporting Czechoslovakia. So there's a, a, a way, an out clause, if you will, for the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union does see Nazi Germany as, Nazi Germany as a threat, 
does collaborate with France, Czechoslovakia, um, to try to uh, contain Germany. But all of that falls away because Stalin can see that the West is not really standing up to uh, Hitler. And the danger is that uh, the British and French might be, hey, go that way, Hitler. Go to the East. And so Stalin is going to preempt that by striking a deal with Hitler, saying, go West, you know, go that way. Uh, Stalin, when he signs the pact in 39, believes that the next war will be a replay of the First World War. The Germans will attack into France and Belgium, and what will be the result? That lunar landscape of trenches, it'll be a protracted war uh, in which hundreds of thousands, millions will be killed as the German, French, and British armies clobber each other. They will also bomb each other, and the Soviet Union will stand on the sidelines, you know, cheering them on. Uh, the Romans had a phrase for this, Tosius Gaudens. You want to stand on the sidelines and watch your enemies fight each other and weaken each other. And then you step in. And Stalin's quite clear about this in explaining why he makes the pact with Nazi Germany. He has to defend himself from party comrades who say, no, comrade Stalin, Nazi Germany is our enemy. It's an ideological foe. They want to kill us. And Stalin said, yeah, I understand that. And it is a danger. But uh, I want the Soviet Union to be positioned that we reap the benefits of uh, expanding communism after the British, French, and uh, Germans uh, weaken each other. So he, he's very conscious about what he's doing, doing there. Again, it's very hard to bring about a cooperation because in the West, in Britain, there's a lot of hostile feeling toward the Soviet Union. And Soviet leader Stalin is also... Well, he's dubious about the resolve of the West. Once Stalin is attacked on June 22, 1941, Britain under Churchill immediately offers aid and says, we're your ally in this fight against the common enemy. Franklin D. Roosevelt, even though the U.S. isn't in the war, in the summer of 41, gives Lend-Lease to the Soviet Union because Franklin D. Roosevelt understands that Soviet resistance is a key element to defeating Nazi Germany. So... Uh, once Hitler attacks the Soviet Union, Britain and the United States do as much as they can um, uh, to support uh, uh, Stalin's Russia. Um, so there, there was a problem there in forming that coalition that eventually becomes the Grand Alliance that defeats Hitler's uh, Germany. Um, the question is, my focus is on Europe, but what about the Pacific? Um, and, uh, and that is, is a great question because we, a European focus, makes the war, Second World War begin in 1939. But if you were to recast our, our, our gaze out to the Pacific, uh, you'd probably make the case that the Second World War begins in 1937, which is when Japan begins a major war with China, nationalist China. In fact, you can even take it back maybe to 1931 when Japan takes over Manchuria, the six big provinces up in the uh, northeast of, of China. But certainly in 1937, a major war is broken out between Imperial Japan and nationalist uh, China. Uh, so four years before Pearl Harbor, the Chinese and the Japanese are fighting each other. Now we, with our American focus, tend to think about the Day of Infamy, December 7th, that that's when the Pacific War began. It began four years before. And as you well know, people of Japan and the people of China are very much aware of that, that before the U.S. was actively involved in fighting, 
those two countries were fighting each other. And uh, for the Chinese today, um, bring up the, what they see as a century of humiliation by the Western powers, but that Japan in particular was beating up on China uh, in the late 30s. Uh, the rape of Nanjing, where the nationalist capital was taken by the Japanese and the horrific slaughter that takes place as the Japanese army seeks to terrorize the Chinese population into uh, surrender. Um, the, the, this is not ancient history for the people of Japan and China today. And the current regime in Beijing um, highlights, whenever uh, they want to play that nationalist card, highlight this war between Japan and China. So uh, it's something that's very much in the memory of the peoples of Japan and, and uh, China. But 39, well, that's when the European war begins, but a, a good case could be made that the Pacific War, 37, is when the Second World War uh, begins, with Japan attacking uh, uh, China. Uh, how did Germany uh, cultivate its alliance with Japan? Um, and was that a lost opportunity for the Allies? Um, that's a great follow-on question to the previous one. Um, Japan uh, is fearful of its position in Asia. It sees Stalin's Russia getting stronger and that Stalin's Russia will pose a threat to Japan's interest in the Far East. Uh, especially Manchuria, this area of China that is rich in raw materials, coal and iron, that Japan wants. Um, they're also afraid of a nationalist Chinese revival. In 1927, Chiang Kai-shek moves north with his forces and starts to unify China under the nationalist uh, regime. So the Japanese sitting in Tokyo, you say, boy, Soviet Russia's getting strong, China's getting strong. There's going to be a showdown someday in Asia to who, see who is the dominant power in Asia. Is it going to be the Soviet Union? Is it going to be China? Or is it going to be Japan? Uh, so the Japanese are frightened by that. Uh, they see in Germany uh, a country that can help them uh, because Germany can tie down Britain, can tie down the United States and Europe and the Soviet Union, creating something of a power vacuum in the Pacific so that they can move against China, one of the threats that they face. So what grows up is uh, this uh, coordination, uh, the Axis powers of Mussolini's Italy, Imperial Japan, and Germany. They see themselves as cooperating against this uh, bigger enemy, the Soviet Union and uh, the United States and Britain. So... Um, uh, Germany eventually sees in Japan a very powerful ally. Um, despite his racial views of the world, Hitler saw in the Japanese a great warrior race, as he described them. And he thought that they would uh, do well in the Pacific War. And um, by doing well, by Japan doing well, they'll tie down the U.S. in the Pacific. And that means that the U.S. can't send as much to Europe to fight. And... Um, one reason why Hitler declares war on the United States on December 11th, 1941, is that he wants to stand by his Japanese ally in a war against the United States because he believes that the Japanese, by striking the U.S., will delay America's ability to launch an invasion of the continent of Europe. Um, he is afraid that if Japan isn't in the war, the result will be that 
the U.S. will eventually come into the war on the side of Britain and be able to invade Europe in 42 or 43. But by Japan coming in the war, it gets delayed. It gets delayed. And that gives him an opportunity to defeat the Soviet Union. So uh, Hitler's decision to declare war on the U.S. often seems irrational, but in his own mind, he saw that support for the Japanese was important uh, because it enabled him to do better in Europe. Um, but again, it's a, that, that coalition between Japan and Germany is a, is a very dangerous one because these are two very, very powerful uh, uh, countries. Uh, the question uh, about what happened to the German economy between Versailles and Locarno, that's a very troubled time. Uh, the German economy tanks uh, in part because the French are insistent upon the Germans paying reparations. And when the Germans didn't meet a reparations payment, the French sent their army into the Ruhr, the French and the Belgians. And uh, the German response to that was passive resistance. They couldn't fight because they had been disarmed by Versailles. But the German government said that no German worker should work in the mines uh, to do coal or produce iron or steel that the French and Belgians can then take back. Uh, and the result was that in 24, the German economy goes down, plus the German uh, leadership decides that they're going to print money. Uh, and they create this hyperinflation that destroys everybody's savings in Germany. Again, the theory is that you want to tank, you tank the German economy, but you also hurt the economies of France and Belgium and everybody else. The economies are so intertwined that you can uh, hurt your enemy uh, Again, not with weapons, but economically. And it does. It, it creates a, a huge downturn in Europe, which is one of the reasons why the Americans and the British are stepping in and saying, we've got to somehow bring about an end to this confrontation between Germany and France over reparations. We have to step in here because if we don't, the world economy won't recover from the war. So what leads to Locarno is the uh, French attempt to force the Germans to pay reparations. Um, so the German economy right after the war does not do well. But after Locarno, it, it, it actually starts to take off. The uh, U.S. Uh, starts to invest large money, large amounts of money in Germany, because, again, it was seen that Germany was a good investment opportunity. So in the late 20s, you see American capital flows going uh, to Germany at this time. Germany pays its reparations bill, but it's a reduced one. Uh, uh, reparations bill to uh, Britain and, and um, uh, uh, France and Belgium. Uh, so what you see is American money going to Germany, German reparations going to France, uh, Britain, and then France and Britain paying the war debt back to the U.S. Because we were very much insistent that Britain and France, they should honor their commitments. You know, the famous line of Calvin Coolidge, when uh, the... The Europeans would say, why don't you cancel our, 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 our debt, the war debt? And Calvin Coolidge said, they hired the money, didn't they? Uh, so, I mean, no, you pay your debts. Uh, well, well, anyway, so you have that triangular economic relationship that works well until the Great Depression. And then American capital flows dry up. And the whole system breaks down. The German economy no longer has the outside investment. Uh, it can't pay the reparations, and Britain and France can't pay the war debts. So you, you have a breakdown of the world economy at, uh, at this time. So the German economy in the late 20s does well. Uh, you can measure it politically. The national extremist parties don't do well at the polls. It takes the Great Depression 
to see a spike up in the Nazis to where the Nazis become the largest single party in the German parliament. So if you had that economic trend going, if you don't have the Great Depression, uh, and one that lasts from 29 to 32, 33, the result is I, I don't, you know, Hitler's a marginal figure. You know, he's a, an extremist thug uh, that is kept, you know, in his box. Uh, and you don't have a Second World War, at least not the one that, that you have in Hitler's war. Um, how was Germany capable financially of building armaments at this time, uh, at the same time they're building infrastructure? Yes, this is a big make-works project. The autobahns in Germany, again, there's a strategic rationale for that, to be able to move troops, motorized troops, and trucks and vehicles, tanks, across highways. So Germany is investing big in infrastructure to employ people, uh, and also, of course, expanding their armed forces. And they're able to do this uh, initially because uh, the, there's just so much slack in the economy that when, you, when it starts to grow, yeah, uh, you don't see much of an inflation threat. But by 1937, it's clear that there is an inflation threat in Germany. And because of what happened at the Ruhr crisis and inflation destroying German savings, the Nazi regime understood that the threat of inflation was something that could turn German public opinion against them. Okay, they're an authoritarian regime, but that doesn't mean they're obtuse, that they don't have a good sense, a pulse of the German people. So in 37, they're being warned that there's going to be an inflation, that they can't sustain this level of armaments production. At that time, it was about 18 to 20% of the gross domestic product. In other words, the overall economy... About 20% of that is going to armaments. And so Hitler's financial advisors, you know, are telling him, we can't sustain this. You have to scale back government spending to curtail inflation. And, of course, for Hitler, who wants a war, I'm not going to do that. He wants to keep spending, keep spending on armaments. Um, So what he does is he fires his finance minister. You know, you're not giving me the news I want to hear. And oh, by the way, he he calls a meeting, by the way, the threat is so severe, he calls a meeting uh, at the end of 1937 where he brings in the generals and the finance minister and the secretary of state, their their, uh, foreign minister, calls them all together and says, uh, you know, we're at a critical turning point. Uh, The time has come for Germany to strike and start wars. And the finance minister goes, oh, no, I'm sure you're crazy. Uh, the Secretary of State, the uh, Foreign Minister, says, you know, hey, this is going to lead to another world war, and we're going to get crushed. We didn't do well in the first world war. Why do you think we're going to do better now? By the way, the generals start to rebel. The army generals, not the Navy lead, not Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe, but the army generals say, the army isn't ready for a big war. They're not ready yet. So what does Hitler do? He fires the finance minister, he fires the Secretary of State, he fires his top generals and replaces them all, you know, with people who are yes-men. And, uh, of course, once you get a a big war, Hitler starts off the big war, uh, you know, uh, in 1939. He thought it was going to start in 38. You're not worrying about inflation anymore. You're worrying about winning and all, you know, pulling out all the stops to win. So uh, uh, Hitler's um, way of um, solving the economic problem is to export it by conquering other countries. 
It's as simple as that. He sees an occupied Europe that can be exploited uh, to further Germany's ambitions on the global stage. Eventually, Hitler believed that after he's conquered Europe, that a great war would occur between um, a German superpower and American superpower. Uh, a world that we fortunately didn't get to see. But imagine if Hitler had gotten nuclear weapons, was able to conquer Europe and get nuclear weapons, and you have a nuclear standoff between the United States and the Western Hemisphere and a Europe dominated by Germany. What a scary picture that would be. Uh, the Cold War was bad with the Soviet Union, but uh, that type of confrontation between the U.S. and Nazi Germany Boy, that's unthinkable. That is a, a scary scenario there. Soviet leaders tended to be prudent. Hitler is the big risk taker. It would have been a grave danger. Eventually, he sees a war coming about with the U.S. Um, the United States, uh, under Roosevelt, Roosevelt understood that danger. And so he's taking, going as far as he can with American public opinion to get the U.S. to support the allies against Nazi Germany so that that awful scenario didn't, didn't happen. Uh, again, history can go in different paths. There's nothing inevitable about the paths that go. Uh, just to conclude, um, you know, uh, that you know, Churchill said that this was a war that shouldn't have occurred. I think you know, up to the January 30th, 1933, when Hitler comes to power, uh, this war is avoidable. But once you have the great crash and Hitler coming to power, there's going to be some crack up that's going to happen in Europe. And hence Britain, France, U.S. have to take earlier steps to arm to protect themselves. If there is any hope, it is to deter a Hitler from aggressive action. And I don't see how you can deter Hitler. There are some governments, some leaders that you just can't deter. They have to be defeated. And uh, in, in this case, I think that Britain, you might not be able to avoid war. You better prepare yourself for that war when it comes so that when you fight it, you're much better equipped and ready to defeat your enemy because you're in a fight. Uh, Churchill was right. This is an existential fight that's going to take place. And he recognized uh, that. Uh, again, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.